Yeah, right. What did you say? Was that fun or what? Yes, it was, Eddie. Felt like a Gaither homecoming moment there. It's like, that was so fun. My goodness. There are no songs like the songs that people write out of their heart of love for the Lord. I have a friend whose name is Sean. He served as a U.S. Marine. Avid cyclist. His wife, Tina, was in uh, my youth group, our youth group at Loomis years ago. Sean and I, we stay in touch, and Sean visited our service a while ago, and we track each other's rides on Strava. He's lots, he rides lots faster and lots farther than I do. He's like fast like Marlin and long like Dave Reverts. And anyway, Sean uh, was riding from Battle Creek uh, to his home in Homer <laughs> a couple years ago. Do we have a photograph of this? And he wrecked his bike. You see the front wheel is gone. Go to the next picture. Because he hit a squirrel. <laughs> if you're going to wreck your bike, I think that's how you want to do it. So a squirrel. So he's going like 20 miles an hour, which in bike language is like wicked fast. And this squirrel runs out and gets lodged in his fork and it snaps his carbon fiber fork off. And then he landed on his head. So I knew I would want to talk to you about the helmet of salvation today. <laughs> Just kidding. That'll be later. But I do, I do want to illustrate how important it is for us to be adequately prepared for what we're going to face, including the full armor. And that's where we're going in the scriptures today. So please take your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians and chapter 6. And what we're going to do today, we've been teaching, try to be teaching systematically and faithfully a phrase at a time and a word at a time through the epistle to the Ephesians. And today I'm just going to go off on you. Would that be okay? I just go off on you? That's what's going to happen today. So prepare for this from now to noon. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to take one word in our text. Schemes is the word. Schemes. And we're, we're going to go through the scriptures a bit. And you, you got to be kind of, this is not for sissies. I'm just saying, it's not for sissies today. Because what we want to do is this. We want to go from this passage that talks about really the evil one and his strategy. And we're going to go through the scriptures. And I want to show you some examples from the Bible of how the evil one works. Now, God has no rival. You want to say amen? That would be the point to say amen. God has no Rival, finally be strong. Say the next thing be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might or in His mighty power. God has no rival, no rival, but without God, we are no match for Satan and His schemes and His organization. That's why verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 6 say, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the, there's the word, schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is kind of ominous language. So without God, so God has no rival, 
but without God, we're no match for Satan, his schemes, and his organization. And we must not be careful not to mischaracterize the enemy, assuming that his only work is bizarre or paranormal. Most of what he does is not through paranormal displays. But we dare not overlook the enemy. And I think this is what Paul is pointing out to the Ephesians, and this has been passed down in the providence of God to us. We dare not overlook the enemy. And we dare not mischaracterize the enemy. And, and he would like us to believe that he's confined to darkness. And he is in darkness, but he masquerades, remember, as, a, as ministers, as ministers of light and, and in, as angels of light and himself as an angel of light. And so what he, his work is dark, but sometimes it appears like light. He, or he'd like us to see him in the bizarrest of terms. He like us like when I was a kid, I was in my neighborhood, and the local Baptist church, and I so appreciate our Baptist heritage. Baptist people have done some of the coolest and most creative things to get the gospel to people, and I'm proud of that. But the local Baptist church had vacation Bible school, and so they sent a bus through our neighborhood to gather up kids for the Bible school. And behind the bus was a guy in a red devil outfit on a motorcycle. And he was shaking his fist at the, that was kind of creative. That stuck in my mind all these years. I hope some kid went to Bible school because of those antics. But he would, but Satan would love it if we thought he was confined to, you know, overweight Baptist guys on a motorcycle in a devil's outfit. Not like that. Or if he... He would love it if we only thought of him in sensational and paranormal terms, and all we really thought about was like what you might see in a movie you shouldn't watch, and, and, and that, would, that would be a way that he deceives us. He would like us to think he cannot use believers or cannot engage believers, but he can. According to Matthew 16, 23 and Acts 5, examples that we'll give a little more detail on later, it specifically tells how he engages even believers. So we dare not misunderstand the enemy. I don't know if you saw the movie The Patriot. It was a, it was a, a, a literary rendering or a cinematic rendering of a true story of an American patriot whose name was Benjamin Martin. Benjamin Martin was a farmer, patriot, soldier, and he became known famously as the ghost soldier. And it was because he was so effective at killing the enemy, he overcame a, a, a group of 20 redcoats alone one day. And they, they couldn't figure out how he did it. But after the dust settled, they realized that he armed his entire family. Even the little children were taught, they were given arms, and they were taught how to use them, and they were able to defend themselves. And so this man's fame grew but it was because everybody in the family knew how to fight and knew how to use their weapons. And you may not like it, but the scriptures are clear. We are in a deadly conflict. And everybody in the family needs to know how to fight. And everybody in the family needs, how to, knows, needs to know both how to talk and how to use their weapons. Because his strength is supernatural, the evil one. And because his strategy is subtle, and because his structure is sophisticated, we want to read the text again, because I won't say anything more profound than what you're going to hear right now. Finally, 
be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Today we focus on the word in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. We have a great God. We have a formidable foe. We have an awesome armor and equipment. In verse 18, you'll see that we have the power of prayer. You want to orient yourself in the series or the series within the series on spiritual warfare in Ephesians. Here's what we've done and what we're going to do. Our first message was, remember this, you are weak, Satan is strong, God is omnipotent, open your eyes. The second message, this one, is know the enemy. Understand how Satan works, some of his schemes. The third message, Lord willing, will be specifics of the armor and prayer, and the fourth, and then there may be a bonus message because you've been so good. I may wrap up the five final verses by given the context from Ephesians, or from a, of the story of the Ephesian church that goes from Acts 16, 17 to the meeting with the elders in Miletus from Ephesus in Acts 18. And those last few verses, very fascinating and often overlooked because of it, what we're reading right now just, just so jumps off the page in terms of spiritual warfare. So that's kind of where we are in our messages. So today, three things. Have I lost you yet? Three things. is the, the, the desire of Satan the devices of Satan, and then briefly his defeat, which we'll, we'll give specifics on later. But what does he want to do and how does he want to do it? And we remember that Paul elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 10, he said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, a, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take, you're familiar with this, every thought captive to obey Christ. And the Bible says that in Romans 8, Paul again in Romans wrote, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God and it cannot. So both of those patches tell us something about what we ought to expect when it comes to spiritual warfare and that it has a great deal to do with thoughts and our mind. The mind is the battleground. Every imagination of their thoughts was only evil continually. It says in Romans chapter 1, God destroyed the world according to Genesis. They didn't like to retain God in their imagination. Satan's work in the garden involved suggesting a thought to Eve that wasn't quite true. Satan is a thief. He's a murderer according to Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 44 and Satan's ultimate aim is to destroy you and there's not a way to describe that as, as wicked as it is. John 10, 10 
Jesus is no doubt referring to Satan and his dominion when he says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to snuff out life wherever he finds it. That's kill. He wants to possess whatever he cannot have. That's steal. And why we often use the term possess when it comes to demons and devils or oppress. He wants to render everything else useless. That's destroy. And that's you. And that's the people that you love. And that's this church. And he has many devices to do that. That's why Paul said we are not, remember this, ignorant of his devices in chapter 2 and verse 11, which, by the way, that particular device he was talking about was not being willing to forgive a person who God forgave. That's interesting, isn't it? A little aside, you ever met somebody that did something really bad and you thought, they may be able to forgive him, but I'm never going to be able to forgive him? It's like, did you realize that's one of Satan's devices? Not what you thought about, was it? So we must not be ignorant, and that's why we're going to talk about his devices. Now, there are three general tactics, or you could say one with two forks. Here are the three general tactics that you see when you read scriptures about Satan, and that is he's deceptive. And maybe the two forks of that are temptation and accusation, because temptation is a one way that he deceives. He says, hey, why don't you do this? He solicits evil as if it isn't evil or as if it isn't damaging. In that sense, the temptation is deceptive, is a kind of deception. You see that? But then there's something else that he does, and he's called Diablos, right? He's called the, what, accuser. So he loves to accuse. He loves to bring up your sin against you. Isn't it interesting? So he wants to tempt you to sin, and when you sin, he wants to accuse you of sin. And that's how he works. That's, those are his names. Deception, temptation, solicitation to evil. Somebody said this, in temptation, he, he wants us to doubt the holiness of God. And in accusation, he wants us to doubt the love and the mercy of God. But if he can get us to, if he can distort our thinking about God, then he can have his way with us. He promises to meet legitimate desires in illegitimate ways, or he, he stirs up uh, a desire to meet a, a, des, a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way, or he'll stir up an illegitimate desire. So you want to be really careful when you're hungry, or when you're angry, or when you're lonely, or when you're tired, or I've noticed in pastoral care of people, especially when people sin against you, watch out what you do when somebody sins against you, when somebody speaks evil against you, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're weak, when you're lonely, when you're sick, when you feel sorry for yourself. I talk with men a lot. We talk together about the struggle that we have, the mutual struggle that we have in our sins. And we agree that we usually don't sin until we create kind of a, a story in which we feel sorry for ourselves. And then we allow ourselves to do something that's going to be ultimately very damaging. But there's a story that comes out of World War II when, Rom, when Patton, the great war, met Rommel. And Patton says to Rommel, Rommel was famous for writing a book about warfare. And Patton said, I've read your book. I've read your book. And we can, we can say, though we have no interest in like taunting Satan or his demons, we've read the book. And so what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about how he works. I mentioned already that 
that there is deception involved. And, and there are three things here, and in your notes you'll see these if you go online, maybe later this afternoon if you want to scroll through them right now, you can access them on our digital bulletin, a small version in the digital bulletin link, or a full version on the BethelJackson.org link. You actually have my sermon notes, as messy as they are, you see all of them there. And I don't want you to be afraid when you look at those, but there's a lot there today. There's so much there that if you read it, you might slip out to the restroom. I don't know. But, but, there's this, but here's, a, here's a three categories of deception. You know, the, this, according to the scriptures, Christian, it's possible for Christians to deceive themselves. And over and over again, I listed about 10 different ways that the Bible says don't be deceived, like deceiving yourself. Here, here's some quick examples. Scriptures are there. You can look online. When we hear the truth and don't act on it, it says you're deceiving yourself. When you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. When you think you're something, when you're not, you're deceiving yourself. It says that two places in the New Testament. When you think you're wise in this age, probably five, four times in the New Testament, once in the Old Testament, when you think you're wise in this age, you're deceiving yourself. In other words, the very phrase, don't deceive yourself, is attached to these things. When we think we're religious, but we don't bridle our tongue, we are deceiving ourselves. When we think that we will reap, but we won't sow, we're deceiving ourselves. When we think the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven, we're deceiving ourselves. When we think we can have fellowship with unbelievers and not be damaged by that, we're deceiving ourselves. So it's possible for Christians to deceive themselves. But if that weren't bad enough, we have false teachers abound. Some are really nice and slick and gifted, and they have good things to say. You know, they, they put their poison in sugar pills. And so there are false signs and wonders, according to the scriptures. There are false prophecies, false tongues, and false teachings. There are false occult cults, false religions, and secret societies. All of, our, all of them are designed to confuse people about what is true. And they attach themselves to meaningful causes like good health, or being against abortion, or reclaiming the culture. It could be any of these things. If you get to Acts 20... Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He meets them in Miletus. And he says, watch out for wolves that come in from among you. And they, they don't spare the flock. But here's the point about deception. Christians can deceive themselves without the devil's help. Christians can be deceived by false teachers. But it's possible for Christians to be deceived by Satan and demons. Probably it's a good place right now to tell you something really important. That, the, that a literary device the Bible uses, and it's a literary device that we often use that sometimes can be confusing. Hear, hear me now. Someone will say, well, that was the devil. Now, when Christians, and even the Bible sometimes say the devil did that, sometimes it means the devil did that. Sometimes it means the system that the devil put in place did that. It's used in a kind of a literary way, in a, in a symbolic way. Sometimes it means that specific demons did it. So every time you have a temptation, it's not the devil himself. He's not omnipresent and he's not omnipotent. He, he's creative. He travels fast. He's experienced. He's evil, but he doesn't do everything himself. So hear this. When the Bible sometimes says the devil, 
Sometimes it means the personal devil himself doing it. You have to read the context and study it. Sometimes it means the devil sent a, probably means the devil sent a demon to do it. Sometimes it means the satanic system in place influenced that. And so that kind of helps us in our thinking. But we as Christians often say, well, the devil this and the devil that and the devil this, as if the devil's just scurrying around everywhere at once. And that's not, not even possible. That's not true. But he is a real personal devil. Now, here are some passages that you probably should hear. 1 John 2.18 says, children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming now. Many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. 1 John 4, these are obviously the Apostle John writing in his little epistle toward the end of his life, warning people, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see if they are of, the, of God. And you can read that extended passage there where he gives a lot of detail about that. In other words, he's saying this, it's possible for Christians to be deceived by Satan and other demons, demonic spirits. Also in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, the Spirit speaks expressly in the latter times. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I don't want to shock you. Shock you. It's going to be hard for you to hear this. But false religions are demonic in their origin. It's po- every single faithful church sometimes errs. Satan and demons can be involved in that too. But there are whole systems of falsehood that are dragging people to hell And the scriptures say demons are behind those false systems. And they are large and influential and powerful in our world. And millions of people are going to follow the way to destruction. If you believe what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is, Jesus made that very plain, the wide road that leads to destruction. And that's why Paul, again, wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, no wonder even Satan disguises himself like an angel of light, or he looks like a religious figure. So it's no surprise. His servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So you can expect false teachers to look real appealing and like light. But the Bible says their end will correspond with their deeds. So he blinds the minds of the unsaved. You see that in 2 Corinthians 4.4 in that famous passage there. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But he also can corrupt or invade the minds of believers. And there are examples of that in the scripture. One passage in 2 Corinthians 11 says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see that warning? So young people, hear me out. This is like life and death. You are going to be tempted in ways you don't expect to be tempted. You're going to be tempted by things that look good, that seem good, that feel good. You're going to be tempted by things that are religious, along with other bald solicitations to direct evil. You will also have ambushes, false teachers. Somebody's going to come along that you're going to admire They're going to say things in a a really wonderful and unique way. They're going to be smart and gifted and pretty or handsome and creative. And they're going to tell you something that that would cost you your soul if you weren't born again or will cost you your soul if you're not. So this is really serious. The Bible doesn't warn about this just in a few places. So there is this deceit, this deception. So again, through temptation, 
Which in a way is Satan saying, God doesn't care if you're holy like he's not holy. Or through accusation, which is him saying, you can never be forgiven for that. I know who you are. I know what you are. I know what you've done. And this is a theory on my part. You could almost divide a congregation like this in half, maybe. And you could say half of the people, it's really temptation to solicitation to evil. That's their big thing. And maybe the other half, it's accusation is their big thing. Or maybe for now, it's temptation. And for later, it will be accusation. He'll try to get you to sin now. And then as soon as he gets you to sin, he has a very clear record. He'll just keep bringing it up to you. And can I just say this? If you teach the holiness of God and you teach the mercy of God, you are an agent of God. If you tell people stories of God's holiness, if you teach the law, and you, and you, because the Bible says the greatest in the kingdom are the teachers of the law. And then if on the heels of teaching the law, you teach the gospel of God, you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If, however, you tell people it doesn't really matter if they sin, or you come along and you remind them of their sin, and you eagerly condemn them because of their sin, or you accuse them because of their sin, you're not an agent of God. Whose work are you doing there? You're an agent of the accuser of the brethren. Can I just say this, Christian? You have, no, you have absolutely no excuse to be an accuser of the brethren. And you think, why would I ever do that? Okay, I'll give you a little scenario in which you might do that. You feel bad about something you've done. person that you live with or love does something against you that hurts you, and they don't seem to get it. And so you want to emphasize what they did. Are you starting to track with me now? And so you're bringing it up to them. You're bringing, and maybe you're bringing it up a few examples from the past. Maybe you're just really good at bringing up examples from the past. And then without really realizing as a nice Christian wife or as a nice Christian husband, you're not serving God. You're actually falling into a demonic trap by throwing somebody's sin up against them. I know it's tempting. I know that it's very tempting to do that. But you need to realize where that's coming from. What does a believer do? He teaches the law. She teaches the law. And then she follows that with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the holiness of God and the mercy of God. These deal with both temptation and accusation and all the deception that comes from that. Now, I know what you're thinking. You were thinking, Pastor, could you give me some examples of this? I'm glad you said that. Because a while ago, that was probably 25 years ago, I was in my little study and I was preparing a lesson, Pastor Jordan, I was preparing a lesson for the teens. I had a little tiny teen group in the, uh, that met in the foyer of our little uh, chapel that we were starting a church in. And a handful of kids would come. They'd come kind of late, and they'd sit in a little circle, and I'd teach them. And I loved those kids. They were sweet kids. They were going to go out and face the world, and I was concerned for them. And I thought, well, I need to write something that will help them realize that Satan wants to destroy them. And so I stayed up late with an old paper concordance. We don't do this anymore. We have digital resources. But back in the day, we had a paper concordance that's actually a book with little tiny print in it. Took a highlighter and I went through this concordance and I marked down passages where it talks about what Satan does. And I built a little teaching 
that I would warn those kids, you can expect Satan to do this and this and this and this and this. And I can still see the faces of those kids in that Grange Hall where we had our church, sitting around that circle. And I can tell you their stories. And this is serious, what I'm going to tell you. This is life and death, what I'm going to tell you. And what I taught them from the scriptures, I want to teach you. Six things. He wants to, this is how Satan, these are, his, these are examples in the Bible of his schemes. Number one, he wants to separate you from the godly influences in your life. He wants to separate you from your godly mother, your godly dad, your godly grandma, your godly grandpa, the elders of the church. He wants to separate you from the pastors and teachers. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you that he can sift or separate you like wheat. He wants to ferret you out from the people that will be a safety to you and get you out on your own where he can kill you. He wants to embitter you against those who love you. That's why 2 Corinthians 2.11 is talking about unforgiveness, bitterness. We don't want to be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his devices. Remember the incident? It was the man who sinned in such a vile and egregious way that Paul told them they need to deal with it in 1 Corinthians. They dealt with it, and then he sought forgiveness, and they didn't want to forgive him. And, they, and then Paul said, that is one of Satan's tactics. When someone has sinned in a, hor- in a unspeakably vile way, like the guy in 1 Corinthians did, he comes to genuine repentance, and you don't want to forgive him, then Satan is at work. Like he was at work in him to do that evil thing, he's at work in you not to forgive him of that evil thing. Anyway, interesting, isn't it? That's what he wants to do, separate you from godly influences in your life. That's why the Bible says, and it's really important, young people, hear this, children, obey your parents and the Lord, honor your father and your mother. One of the greatest secrets of the Bible is just that simple. And that is, you always can remember what your mother would have said. You always can remember.